Live from the Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where Mormonism meets Biblical Christianity face-to-face, -face. and I'm your host, Sean McCraney. We thank the true and living God for allowing us to participate in His ministry, and we pray that He will be with you and us tonight. Church, go to www.campus.com for information. This Sunday, we're adding a third gathering from 7 to 9. We meet at 10, we meet at two, in the morning, 2.30 uh, in the afternoon, now 7 to 9 for people 16 to 25 years of age. And then the following week, beginning June 11th, that's a Monday night, at the downtown Denny's in Salt Lake City, again from 7 to 9, there's going to be a women's Bible study. We will have uh, male Christian males there to make sure that you are escorted to and from your vehicles in safety. And we think it's going to be a tremendous uh, opportunity for the uh, women of the area if they want to learn the Bible. Go to www.campus with hyphens between the C-A-M-P-U-S.com for more information. AM820, a radio station here in Salt Lake, uh, replays Heart of the Matter on Sundays from 1 to 2 p.m. But AM820 is an excellent radio station to listen to in uh, during the week, so we challenge you to check it out. I'm probably going to get in huge trouble for saying this right now, but having moved to Utah, what the heck is going on with the focus on the dead? I'm sorry, but yesterday we live across the street from a, from a cemetery, and I mean, it was unbelievable. They started in on Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then yesterday, and yesterday was the, was the culmination of it all, people just swarming in. There's more flowers in there, people standing around, and from a first-hand witness, there were, I mean, now listen, I understand completely. If one of my children died, or, or my wife, or my parents, I, there's, a, there's a time of mourning, especially with children and things, but there's a guy out there weeping for his parents who died 40 years ago, and People saying they're so glad out loud that they are sealed together for time and all eternity. Now, as uh, uh, just putting a topping on all of that, uh, my wife and I went to the home of uh, somebody's house yesterday, and while we were visiting with them, a neighbor came by, and the neighbor, who does not like me uh, and is LDS, let us know that she came from a Christian home at one time, and then she lost her daughter, and then she found Mormonism, which told her her daughter could be sealed to her for time and all eternity. And that's all that mattered. And she joined the true and full gospel because of that promise. And I told her very, very kindly, you know, your daughter is going to be with you by virtue of Jesus and what he did and the grace that he bestows upon this world, not because some man told you that you're going to have this sealing done. And yet all around us yesterday, it was just amazing. So... I mean, I'm learning what it's like to be a Utahan, and I guess this is part of it. So maybe next year I'll try to get out there to a seminary, to, a se seminary, uh, a cemetery too, and uh, kind of, you know, uh, act like I care. Uh, okay, um, how about a moment from the Word? If you're new to the show, we go through the Bible, we start in the book of John, and we go verse by verse to try to find passages that kind of shed light on the Mormon-Christian debate. And last week we left out in John chapter 6, verse 15. A few verses later, Jesus finds himself surrounded by the masses who are there. He knows they're there because they want bread. 
He provided them with miracle bread, loaves that were reproduced earlier the day before, and then they gathered around him again. And knowing that they sought physical food over the spiritual food that he truly came to bring, he said, hey, don't labor for food, don't work for food that perishes, but for food that will last eternally. This caused them to ask the Lord, ask Jesus in John 6, 28, what shall we do that we might work the works of God? What shall we do that we might work the works of God? What a tremendous question, especially in the Mormon Christian debate. How do you answer this? What do we do that we might work the works of God? Uh, Mormonism proposes an almost innumerable, endless list of what people have to do to do the works of God. Home teaching, fasting, family home evening, pay tithing, attend the temple, keep the Sabbath day, their Sabbath day holy, accept all callings, magnify all callings, sustain your leaders, uh, uh, attend your Sunday meetings. The list goes on and on and on. Jesus sent to the earth uh, to, among other wonderful things, clarify the truth, could have listed a whole bunch of things too. Get that dog out of here. Uh, but he didn't. Uh, let's read the next verse, and this is what Je how Jesus answers. He says, This is the work of God, that you believe on him who he has sent. That is the work. Jesus could have said, pay money, obey the Sabbath day, do this. But he said, they said, how do we do the works of God? And he said, this is how you do it. Believe on him who he has sent. Do you believe it? Is that the work? Do you believe that? Or are you living under a burden heaped upon your back by somebody to keep you in change? Uh, uh, later on in John, Jesus said, he added another commandment. He said, to do the works of God, believe. And then he added another commandment. And he did it in John 13, 34. He said, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. From the context of the whole of Scripture, Christians, true Christians, are given two commandments and only two commandments in the august presentation of the gospel in uh, uh, the New Testament. Believe on him who God has sent and love the Lord thy God uh, and love your neighbor as yourself. There is nothing more required of God since Jesus came and did what he did. Don't believe me? Listen to what John the Beloved said in 1 John 3.23. You ready? And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another as he gave us commandment. That's all it is. Believe and love. My friends, religious institutions like Mormonism rely on feeding people... Um, feeding the machine that they have created by the works of the people around them. And in order for them to ensure that the machine continues to survive, they heap God-given, supposedly God-given commandments upon their backs. You must do this. You must do that. You must pay this. You must visit this place this many times a month. You must, you should, all this stuff. But Jesus and his apostles made it perfectly clear what is required. Believe on him and love. That's a liberating message. And with that, let's have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we uh, need you. We believe on you and we believe on your son who you sent. 
Help us to love one another uh, in the cause of truth. Uh, be with our audience wherever they may be. Be with our uh, uh, volunteers, the people who are involved in ministry, and those who are searching for truth tonight, Lord. We pray for this. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Before I delve into page-by-page -page contents of the Book of Mormon, which I promised we were going to do, I think it's important that I kind of lay out some of the things we need to be looking for when we uh, open up the Book of Mormon beginning next week. Uh, you know what? We have someone from Afghanistan trying to call us right now. So before I do the message, we're going to take him. Brady from Afghanistan, you're on the air. Hey, Sean. How you doing? I'm doing all right. I've been waiting like three weeks to get this call. And I had to change my whole work schedule just to be able to call. Well, praise God. Glad to have you. What's happening? All right, check this out. I'll cover this fast because I ain't got a lot of people. Uh, I, I was grew up Jack Mormon, and I married a, a bishop's daughter at 18. And I was, uh, I was doing all the bad stuff, smoking and drinking. We fast forward about seven years, and I, she got me on the straight and narrow, as one of your callers put it. And uh, I was still in the Palmyra, New York temple while I was stationed there. So seven years after that, I was getting ready for my second tour in Iraq, and I was watching a movie on Islamic terrorism, and this family was celebrating how their, uh, they, they were so happy their oldest son had just blown himself up, and it, that, was, that was serving God. And uh, I thought that was pretty, pretty sad that that, that that was what they, uh, that that was a good thing for them, that, that was, they were brainwashed into believing that God would want them to blow their kids up. And I said that, and I thought that was really sad that they, that's all they knew. That's the only thing they grew up around. That's the only reason they believed it. But then I started to, it gave me pause because I had to look into myself because I grew up in Utah. And I started thinking that maybe it's possible that I was brainwashed into believing something a lot more palatable, something a lot more desirable and beautiful. And so that's when I started really researching into the church myself. I told my wife I needed to re-cage my faith, and uh, she decided that, that was time for us to divorce. Uh, since I had left the, uh, the church. But anyway, finished my tour in Iraq, came back, we went knuckles over it, and uh, a lot of tears and everything, but we ended up staying together. We didn't baptize our daughter, and we left the church, and we're not a denomination, all three of us, and uh, thank God for it every day. Praise God. <laughs> Thanks, man. What are you doing now? Probably a dumb question, but what are you doing in Afghanistan? Uh, probably not something I should be talking about. Ooh. Um, just, uh, we're doing a lot of, uh, a lot of good things over here for Afghani people, but not something I should probably talk about on the air. I understand. Brady, we really thank you for your comments and for taking the time and expense to call us from all the way and changing your work schedule. God bless you, my brother. John, Sean, this yeah. is really actually what I wanted to call about. Um, yeah. I'm a, kind of a lot like you. Um, when I get in an argument with, uh, LDS people, I have, like, no tact. I just go knuckles all the way. But, uh, <laughs> kind of a joke. Anyway, <laughs> the, um, the testimony thing constantly comes up. I have a testimony to church, and it's hard to fight with that, but you need to know how to do it. The big problem is, is I've seen uh, LDS people use faith, the word faith a lot. Like, I have faith in Joseph Smith. I have a faith in the church. But the problem is, is it's used contextually wrong. I, I've, Chuck Missler, I've listened to him a lot, and uh, one of his big comments, uh, one of John Leffler's comments on there when he opens up was, uh, for one of his shows was, uh, faith is the leap from things that I know to be true to that which must be true. You have to have a solid foundation of truth for faith, or else it just becomes hope. 
That's right. Fine. So I, I don't know if that statement will help anybody who's who's fighting through it, but if, if LDS people use faith in part of their argument, you need to help them identify with the difference between blind faith with no fact and what true faith is, a solid foundation that you can build on. Great point, Brady. Thank you so much. It's excellent. All right. I look forward to meeting you in person when I get back. You be safe over there. Thanks, man. Okay, bye-bye. A great call from Afghanistan. I, I kind of kept it short because uh, the audio was so bad, but I think he got his points across, and we'll be talking about faith and facts and all that as we continue to move on through the Book of Mormon. Getting back to what I was saying is um, uh, we're going to go through and write tonight and show you the con some of the things we're going to be looking for as we skim through the Book of Mormon. And I have intimated over the course of our examination of the Book of Mormon it's, it's unquestionably an amalgamation of information that Joseph Smith gathered from all sorts of places and he put them into this book under the story that some Jews came from Palestine area by boat and over the course of many hundred years supposedly grew into several mighty nations who ultimately destroyed themselves and the remnant became the American Indians. That's in and around this story which serves as a vehicle to kind of tell the story of the Book of Mormon, there are a whole bunch of subplots and themes and ideas that are uh, presented that were modern day conversational pieces in Joseph Smith's day and in the newspaper and from the pulpits and also from the Bible. So in the Book of Mormon, we will find themes about government and liberty and the American work ethic and the true Christian church and things like that. But there's also a number of elements missing from uh, the book you would think would uh, contain these elements because they're supposedly written by Jews or descendants of Jews. As Gerald and Sandra Tanner point out in their book, uh, Joseph Smith's Plagiarisms, which is available at utlm.org, uh, the Book of Mormon, unlike the Bible, is a very Im impersonal book. Impersonal. Uh, its characters are single-dimensional. Um, meaning they're either all good or they're all bad. Uh, they're wooden, meaning they uh, are without uh, many uh, described human traits. They're, they're like uh, prototypes for what people should be like or should not be like. And it's very common for a, 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 a writer to write that way. Um, in a literal history and from a literal people and their literal travels, Personal instances are typical, and they're usually included in narratives, especially when written by Jews who are an impassioned people. Uh, for example, the Bible is littered with insights that describe the lifestyle of the Jews in real societies, in real families, in real homes. Uh, the Bible shows men and women for who they are, how men and women really are, good and evil. So we have even prophets of God in these books doing good and evil, failing, and which shows them involved in different human pleasures and different human evils. Consider the following terms, all of which are abundantly present in the Bible. Music, which is so important to the ancient Israelites. Remember David and his harp. Um, the mentioning of colors, purple and white and red and yellow. Colors are all through the Bible. Children and their names, women and their names, death and the details of burial and mourning are all through the, uh, the Bible, uh, sickness, personal illness, food and food prohibitions, 
and marriage and the ceremonies that are involved in marriage are often referred to throughout uh, the Bible. From what, I've told, from what I'm told and having known a number of Jews uh, from Israel myself and uh, having read the word extensively, we can see easily even today how important these things are to the Jewish culture. Uh, that's part of what makes them such a beautiful people. Uh, but oddly, these things are either missing entirely or barely touched upon in this Book of Mormon, supposedly written by Jews. In fact, Nephi, the central character early in the book, never even mentions any of the names of his children. And while he uses his own name in the phrase, I, Nephi, 86 times in the first two books of the Book of Mormon, he never mentions his wife's name. Hmm. Odd, maybe it's indicative of Joseph Smith's heart for women and wives and their real value to society. And it came through the book he was writing. In fact, mothers or mother, sisters or sister are rarely mentioned. Sister or sisters are never mentioned in the Book of Mormon. Aunt, grandmother, never in the Book of Mormon. And the very fact that all things female are hardly given a thought uh, not only suggests that the book did not come from Jews who do write about their families and wives and things, but it provides us with kind of a preemptive smack of how uh, Mormonism would view women in the years and decades uh, to come. Additionally, for a group coming from a boat from arid uh, Palestine and into the eastern part of the Americas, I personally find it odd that there are rarely uh, meant ever mentions of weather in what I call the onion these days. Uh, ice, snow, cold, heat of the day, winter, never a mention in the Book of Mormon. Now, if you've ever been on the East Coast during the winter, uh, wouldn't that be somewhat troubling of an experience to, to come from Jerusalem on the boat and face an East Coast winter? Uh, I mean, how come some Book of Mormon prophet didn't write, yay, it is coldeth as hell over here in this, in this land, but nothing. We get nothing about weather in the Book of Mormon because it was fiction. And you see, real people would write about it. Romantic love, absolutely absent from the Book of Mormon. And yet in the Bible, I mean, we have romantic love all through it. And then we have Song of Solomon, which interestingly enough, Joseph said was not an inspired book and should be torn out of the Bible. He didn't know the Song of Solomon and its meaning very well. Uh, but yet romantic love, which is a very big part of the human experience, is completely missing from the Book of Mormon. And finally, where the Jews and uh, their honest and ancient record, the Bible, goes into great detail about homes, dwellings, uh, furnishings, talks about candlesticks, uh, windows, bedrooms, beds, um, uh, uh, rooftops, uh, entrances to homes. The Book of Mormon speaks about these things 98% less than the Bible that we have. Why? Because it was fiction. Uh, it all seems odd for a legitimate ancient record, but admittedly, it doesn't prove or disprove the Book of Mormon. It's just one thing to add to the quiver that we look at when examining the contents. Now, the LDS will defend um, the lack of these things in the Book of Mormon by saying, well, the plates, there could only be so much room on those, and therefore they had to have an economy of words when they put the Book of Mormon together. This is proven totally false when you look at the redundancy of sentences and language in the Book of Mormon, which Mark Twain said, if you take it out, you're gonna have a pamphlet. 
So you, we, we have redundancy and redundancy and, and carrying on with all these words that aren't necessary, and yet there wasn't enough words uh, to describe the way they lived. For example, and this is just one of many, the phrase, and it came to pass, listen to this, is used 1,407 times in the Book of Mormon. Uh, that's seven words repetitiously used, really. And there's not enough room to write about families and, and wives' names and, and other women in the Book of Mormon. Finally, we have um, this supposed ancient record written by devout Jews who came from the Old West, greatly lacking in details that mattered most to them. And that was referencing their uh, religious and, uh, beliefs. Uh, read the Old Testament, even the New Testament. It is full of customs, religious celebrations, feasts, rituals. Remember, we are seeking to establish if the Book of Mormon is truly an ancient origin and if it was written by devout Jews who came from the old world. This is how we tell. If it's so, why is so much of this important cultural information missing? The Tanners, again in their book, Joseph Smith's Plagiarism, page 208, write, quote, while the Book of Mormon shows a fair knowledge of biblical Christianity, and a real interest in the religious topics that were being debated during Joseph Smith's lifetime, it seems to be almost totally deficient when it comes to the issues which were of great importance to Jews prior to the coming of Christ. I mean, when we read the Bible, we find detailed information of the Passover, festivals, feasts, around this culture in which it revol uh, uh, revolved. The Book of Mormon, not a mention. Uh, anywhere. Uh, the word feast is in the Book of Mormon 12 times, uh, but it refers in every passage just to meals that were being eaten, and only once does it refer to a celebration, and that's from a passage that's taken directly from the King James Bible and placed in the text verbatim. And so Joseph didn't add any narrative about feasts or celebrations or Sabbath days or holy days or Sabbath years or any of that uh, to his Book of Mormon. Unleavened bread essentially... Uh, Essential in the Jewish culture, essential in picturing Christ, not a mention. Year of Jubilee, New Moon, Sabbath year, uh, nothing extra in the narrative outside of taking extracts from the King James Bible and putting it in. Law of cleanliness, not. I mean, there's just too many that are missing from the book. And we'll be looking for those as we go through it. So those are just a few of the things that are missing from the ancient record. Uh, Let's take a look at what is present in terms of general themes of the Book of Mormon. First and foremost, one of the greatest indictments on the book is the superabundant presence of teachings and references to Jesus Christ. Now, you would say, well, what's wrong with that? Is that a bad thing? Remember, trying to discover if the Book of Mormon is of ancient uh, history. Looking at the Bible... There is not one single sentence prior to the gospel accounts that give the name of Jesus or Christ in the Old Testament or in the intertestamentary period when the apocryphal gospel writings came forward. Never a mention of the name Jesus, Jesus, Yeshua, uh, Christos, Messiah, Meshiach, none of those mentioned. Now, there, uh, there is, excuse me, Messiah is in there. In the Old Testament, we do read these terms describing the coming Messiah. Okay, you ready? Here they are. 
the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, the Messiah, the strong arm of the Lord, a tender plant, a root out of dry ground, word of God, a plant of renown, Emmanuel, wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, the Redeemer of Israel, fountain of living waters, the first and last, the Lord's servant, the tree of life, the tree of knowledge, the living God, the ancient of days. I think that applies to the Father, by the way. A precious stone, words, and the son of man. But Joseph Smith and his Book of Mormon sought to outdo the Bible. And one of the ways in which he outdoes the Bible is providing, before Jesus is born, his name in the text of an Old Testament-timed uh, writing. Um, so hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus was born, the Book of Mormon reveals his name, Jesus Christ, in a language that was not known at the time. Uh, see, it represents his name in the Greek, which was not around nor available to the people supposedly living in the Americas. They could not have called him Jesus Christ because those are references to Greek writings, not Hebrew. And the Greek writings did not exist at the time that they're using his name in the Book of Mormon, 600 years BC. To help you understand, you might view the Book of Mormon as having an Old Testament kind of time period and a New Testament time period, okay? In the Old Testament section of the Book of Mormon, Joseph includes the name for the Messiah as Jesus Christ, not knowing that this was the Messiah's name in the Greek language. He thought, probably, that they were calling him Jesus Christ in Israel when he was alive and walking around. That's not his name. Let me tell you, Messiah in Hebrew is translated in the Greek to Christos, all right? In the English, we take the Greek Christos and make it Christ. That's not his last name. That's a title. He's not Jesus Christ. All it means is Jesus the Messiah, Jesus Christos, Jesus the Christ. So he calls him in the Book of Mormon, Jesus Christ, using a Greek name, not even around at that time, in a land where it wouldn't have even been available to them if it had been around. Do you see the problem with it? Um, and so it would have made more sense if Joseph had translated plates. It would have been a big deal if he would have written Yeshua the Messiah will come. Now that's a real large jump too, uh, but, but to call him Jesus Christ before the language is formulated is absolutely ridiculous. Um, do you see the problem? Nevertheless, by page 28 of the Book of Mormon, you're going to see one of these old prophets, 600 BC, include the name Jesus Christ uh, uh, in the translation. We've only touched on the anachronistic stuff. We're going to touch on that far more as we continue uh, to go on. What else will come across? Of course, there's King James plagiarisms that we will see. Uh, I'm going to skip the Matthew example. Uh, there are problems uh, with them taking partial tr uh, things from the King James. As we come across King James uh, quotations, we'll point them out and we'll show you how the King James translators could have been wrong in how they translated it. We know that now by, by study. Yet Joseph Smith included the way they made some errors in his Book of Mormon, which supposedly was given to him by the gift and power of God. Uh, uh, in addition to uh, that, we have quotations 
uh, we have actual storylines that we're going to come across that we find in the Bible and storylines that he parallels in his Book of Mormon using characters like Paul and Alma. He, he parallels them perfectly in all their experiences. Complete plagiarism. And then there's the apocryphal books. All right. Now, let me just tell you really quickly, apocryphal books between Malachi, the Old Testament, and, and the New Testament, John the Baptist ministry, there's 400 year gap. They call that the intertestamentary period. During that time, there were books written, they call them apocryphal books. Apocryphal means secret or hidden uh, and not really reliable either. Okay, during that time, those books were written. And what happened was the Catholics included apocryphal books in their Bible when Joseph Smith was alive, they still do today, and Protestant Bibles included the apocryphal books in their Bible. So let's just go to the first page of the Book of Mormon that we showed you last week. Let me point something out for you. Right here, are we on that? Right here it says, wherefore, in the title page of the Book of Mormon, this is an abridgment of the record. And then down here it uses the term abridgment again. I can't let's see, where is it? Well, it's used, oh, here it is again. An abridgment taken from the book of Ether. Now, you might say, well, so what? Abridgment is used twice here. Well, one, the word abridgment is never used in the Bible. So you would say, well, good, that, that's fine. It didn't need to be used in the Bible. But the word abridgment was used in the apocryphal book um, called Maccabees. Okay, 2 Maccabees uses the word abridgment four times. 2 Maccabees verses 26, 23, 28, and 31. So you think, well, so what? He uses abridgment that's included in Maccabees, one of the apocryphal books. You might think that doesn't prove anything. Um, what would you say if in that same apocryphal book, 2 Maccabees, verse 36, we also find the use of a non-biblical word, Nephi? Same name. We don't see it anywhere in the Bible, but in the apocryphal book, we find the word Nephi. And the second word of the text of the Book of Mormon is I, Nephi, having been born of goodly parents. The second word is a plagiarism, and it comes from an apocryphal book that he took from the Protestant Bible that he was using to help puff up his Book of Mormon. Let's open up the phone lines, 801-973-8820, 801-973-TV20. Listen. First-time callers only. We're strict on that. LDS callers only. And listen, we prefer if you have a question that is succinct. If you have a follow-up question, it's got to be tied to the first question. Don't rabbit trail us. Let's stay on topic of whatever you want to know about. But before we go to the phone lines, allow me to list other resources and themes that we will show you are included in the Book of Mormon as we go through it chapter by chapter. I'll point these out and highlight them. You ready? Anti-Masonic themes, anti-Catholic themes, themes from the Christian primitivist movement and or restorationist movements, themes supporting the New Republic and warnings of not following those uh, themes, themes on American Indian origins, agrarian ideals and values, autobiographical elements regarding Joseph Smith's own life, Christian revival, revivals described in detail by Joseph Smith in the text of the Book of Mormon, prophecies after the fact, 
anti-Jacksonian rhetoric, anti-Trinitarian themes, folk magic references, topics from view of the Hebrews, very strongly tied, opinions on communal republicanism, popular uh, millennialistic notions, and anti-monarchical -mono uh, rhetoric, uh, just to name a few. The Book of Mormon from an ancient source, like Jeffrey Holland said, the Book of Mormon, a book of holy writ, the Book of Mormon, a miraculous book of scripture, the most correct book on earth that will draw a man closer to God than any other book on earth. Those things describe the Bible, not the Book of Mormon. Okay, uh, let's check the phones. We got a lot of information to cover. <coughs> Johnny in Vermont. Johnny, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi, Sean. I got through. You did? Hey, uh, I'm Johnny. I'm calling from uh, Middlebury, Vermont, a uh, musician up here. Um, listen, I, I was a Mormon for a short time up here in Middlebury, and I now, I've since found the Lord, and I go to a Southern Baptist church here now. And, and as I've been coming along, there's certain ministries I've been wanting to kind of move on to that I have concerns that, my on-paper membership at the LDS Church may come back to haunt me one day, you know, so I've tried requesting that they take my name off the records, and of course they seem to have this perfect, you know, you know, drag tail kind of system for that, in where, you know, if, you know, they drag tail long, just long enough to try to talk you back, in which they've tried to do with me, of course, and, and you know, and, you know, first it started off, well, this is too premature, and then there's one reason or another, it's too, we're, we're like two and a half years later now, you know, and and people still come from the branch over here, or now it's a wharf now, but they come to my door still every once in a while trying to talk me back in. The missionaries have now moved in the apartment complex directly across the street from my house even. There's no way I could make that up, seriously. But, I believe you. But, you know, it's, and uh, now I've actually contemplated in these last few years, it's like, what can I do to purposely get myself excommunicated? And I've watched, been watching your show now for about six months or so, and I think if I've heard you right on a few different occasions, you you, well, the way you worded it was you, you asked to be excommunicated, but... Yeah. In fact, they told me here that, that usually if they think someone's trying to get excommunicated on purpose, they won't excommunicate them, I guess. Listen, man, it's really simple, Johnny. Go to utlm.org or go to our website, hotm.tv, and there are, uh, you'll find uh, uh, a, a perfect way in which to get your name off the records of the church. You send the letter uh, to the, uh, uh, your bishop. You say, don't contact me again. If you do, I'm going to sue you I, uh, for harassment or harassment, as my English teacher taught me. And uh, tell him, look it, I want my name off. I don't want a court. I don't want a waiting period. And you let me know when it's done. And just be forceful in the letter and then follow up on it. And if, if you're not forceful with them, they'll take advantage of it and keep you on. I think they keep people on anyway, but... At least you'll have a note from them saying you were taken off. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's really all I want. They probably keep me on anyways, I'm sure. That's, I mean, from what I've gotten to know about these folks. Yeah. Hey, thanks for watching and calling, Johnny. All right, yeah, you too. God bless your show. I'll be praying for you tonight, dude. Thanks, my brother. God bless. Yeah, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We're going to David in Salt Lake City. He is LDS. David, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, Sean, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you? Oh, well, I'm all right. Um, thanks for having me on your show. Um, anyway, a uh, couple of questions for you really quick. I know you're probably pressed for time. Um, I got a uh, patriarchal blessing when I was younger, and it was terrible. It told me I was going to have 
a less than desirable wife and always struggle with money and this kind of thing. And there was really nothing good in it at all. And I just, you know, I've always felt, uh, you know, felt kind of like the black sheep of my family, kind of felt like the black sheep of the ward. Not that bad looking of a guy or anything like that. It's just I felt like, you know, I was been cursed from that point forward. I felt like when I turned 50 years old, somebody just flipped the switch and said, you're done, you know. And uh, do you have any comments to make in terms of, uh, of uh, patriarchal blessings? Well, you know, uh, all I can say is they kind of have, I believe, a boilerplate thing they go by. I think they know who the families are. They know who you are by being in your ward or stake. They do a little research. They, uh, and they speak to the talents that you have or to the proclivities or propensities you have. Uh, I'll always tell this story. I mean, with firsthand knowledge, this was in my own family, of uh, a bunch of girls getting together in a ward and sharing their patriarchal blessings with each other uh, to the horror that they were all the same. And they went to the bishop and showed him, which he didn't know what to say after that. But, you know, I, I find it uh, just reprehensible that you would be burdened with that piece of garbage. Because let me tell you something. The Lord loves the black sheep. That's who he came for. And uh, he, he came and he shed his blood exactly for you. So you can, you can go take that thing and give it back to them, let them smoke it, because they must have been smoking something when they did it for you. And you just trust in the Lord and you let all that garbage go, because it's just a lie. Um, and then my only second question is, I've heard some people discuss that there's, and these are wealthy people, that the, the secrets to wealth are in the Bible. Uh, I, 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 you know, um, when it comes to wealth in the Bible, God blesses some people uh, with uh, monetary uh, wealth and, and praise God, they handle it well. He loves uh, them and he gives it to them and some people he doesn't. Uh, but I know that in the, in the dispensation of grace that uh, our riches wait for us. They're in heaven uh, versus the uh, name it and claim it and the, uh, you know, you do this and you'll get wealthy. I don't really believe that's part of the Christian economy, but I do believe that God continues to bless people. We have some people who support our ministry uh, who have been blessed with money and they're generous. And uh, that is a blessing to us. And so, you know, but in terms of a formula that the Bible provides, uh, that's another thing to, to smoke because I just, uh, I just think it's misleading and I think it takes it out of God's hands and puts it into men's. Uh, one last thing. Uh, when we pass away from here, providing with and saved, uh, what will we be doing for the rest of the duration of the existence of our spirit? We don't know, and that's one of the beautiful things about uh, God and His Word, is he, he wants us to live by faith. Uh, it's easy to come up with kind of uh, uh, explanations of what we'll do, and make it exciting for people to want to embrace it, but God says, listen, I hasn't seen, ears and hear, heard uh, the glories that await them that believe. We don't know what we're going to be doing, and if it's sitting on a cloud, then it is. If it's, if it's doing all kinds of other magnificent things, then it is. If it's being with our families, then it is. But, you know, we trust in God that He has planned for us mansions on high, and we await with Him with hope that, that, that His, not, and that hope means not I hope, I hope. It means I know it's going to come about, and when we pass on, He's going to, you're going to be blown away. But in terms of a solid answer, absolutely no idea. Okay, and then will we have our bodies or not? 
Uh, we're going to have some kind of body, but we don't know what it's going to look like. The Book of Mormon teaches that it's going to look exactly like we look now, with every hair on our head replaced and all this stuff. But again, it gives you answers, so people have answers. But, uh, you know, we know that there's different resurrections. We know that there is different types of uh, good resurrections and not as good based on the type of love and life you lived as a Christian. That's from Paul in Romans, I mean in 1 Corinthians 15. So we don't know exactly. That's another not know exactly. Okay, and I'm going to go to a church on Sunday in Lehigh called the Cormadeo. Is that, that's a Christian church. Are you familiar I, with that? I've heard about it. I don't know about it. Can't comment on it. David, thank you so much for calling, my friend. Thank keep, you, keep going, my brother. Bye-bye. We're going to Susan uh, on line three. Line three is not lit up. Susan, are you there? Susan, line three? Not there. Listen, Russell W., a regular viewer, forwarded this information to us uh, from uh, KUTV, Salt Lake City. The arm of the LDS Church, which served as, quote, master developer of Utah's newest and most elaborate shopping, residential, and office complex, has federal tax-exempt status. Uh, CCRI... The City Creek Reserve, Inc. revealed that it is a non-profit corporation. As such, CCRI spokesman Dale Bills noted the company pays property and sales tax, but it appears CCRI may not pay federal income tax. If CCRI makes money, it goes to the LDS Church. That's in the uh, article. It continues, a week ago, D. Brewer, a representative for mega shopping center developer Tobman Centers, Inc., said Tobman, quote, owns and operates the retail components of City Creek. But that ownership may not be what you think. In the end, all ownership reverts back to the LDS Church. Referring to the shopping center, it goes back in 30 years. In referring to the condos, condo buyers will forfeit ownership of that condo in 99 years, and it will go back to the LDS Church. Uh, a CPA named Anderson says that, uh, I mean, a realtor, commercial realtor says, at the end of the day, CCRI, which is the Mormon Church, owns everything. Uh, in response to a caller last week named Connie, she uh, uh, emailed me follow-up questions. She says, here's a list of my questions, not for scoffing, but in the, for learning. Um, if God and Jesus are one and the same, and she gives me a bunch of whys. Why did God, uh, why did God say in John 3.16, my only begotten son? Why during the baptism did God himself say, behold my son in whom I am well pleased? Why did Jesus pray to God himself? On the cross, Father, Father, where art thou? Which isn't a direct quote. Why did Jesus pray to God himself at Gethsemane? The Father, not by thine will, but mine, not, thy, not my will, but thine be done. Why did Jesus say to God, uh, and the glory be thine forever? Why does Jesus pray to himself if he is in fact God? Uh, who exactly am I praying to? So Connie wants to know all of these things. So I, I just put a few things down. Let me, let me say this. There are three options when it comes to God. There is, first, there is no God. That's option number one. Option number two is there are many gods, okay? And that means gods who are the eternal, omnipotent, perfect, huge God. And option number three is there is one God, okay? Now, the Bible teaches absolutely there is one God. 
It is monotheistic, not polytheistic. The only place where, where the Bible talks about many gods is when it's talking about lesser gods. Judges, God of rock and roll, Ozzy Osbourne, God of this, God of that. There are gods, many, Paul says, but they're a lowercase g. You know, and there is, but there is only one God, uppercase G-O-D, one. So if you're going to agree with that, then we have to somehow come to terms with the fact that the Father is called God in the Bible, the Son is called God in the Bible, and the Holy Spirit is called God in the Bible. Now, polytheistic people will try to say it's one the Father, plus one, the Son, plus one, the Holy Spirit, and that's three gods, but that's called polytheism. And the, and the compilers of Scripture knew, listen, we have the fact there is only one God, but we also have the fact that there are three personages called God in Scripture, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So it's one times one times one equals one. Can you understand it? I can't understand it. But when it comes to the relationship of Jesus to the Father, when Jesus walked around and he prayed to the Father, and the Father spoke to his Son, there are a number of things that you need to consider. Now, um, in Hebrews 1.5, it says, I will be to him a father, and he will shall be to me a son. When Jesus, we know from uh, Colossians, uh, where is it? Colossians 2.9, that the fullness of the God had dwelled in Jesus bodily. We know that in the Old Testament, there was no Father, Son, Holy Spirit division in terms of uh, personages mentioned there. There's only one reference to Father being a capital F. Okay? So we don't have that division made up. But when Jesus, the Word, he's known as the Word, and the Word was made flesh, came to earth and took on a body of flesh, he became the Son of God because he was in a body of flesh. Within him the fullness of the God had dwelling, but still he was a man. And so he prays to the Father who's on high, who Hebrews says is a consuming fire. And he relates to him as a man on our behalf facing all that we face, enduring all that we endure, suffering for our sins because he perfectly faced them, and dying, resurrecting, so that we too can, as belief on him, live with the Father again. So he became the Son in that he took on flesh, and he prayed to the Father as in that way. Is there a Father? Absolutely. Is the Father the Son? No. Is the Son the Holy Spirit? No. Is the Holy Spirit the Father? No. They are three personages, but they amount. They make up one God. Now, please don't call and say, you know, ice can be ice and then liquid and steam and eggs have a yolk and a, and a, and a, and a white and a, and a shell and all of that stuff because it all breaks down when we try to imagine it. Connie, the best thing to do is not try to tackle the hardest uh, concept in scripture and to get in and read the scripture and just try to understand who he was when he came to earth, what he expects, who you are in him, how he'll help you overcome your flesh, and how he'll help you return to the Father. I hope that helps, Connie. Listen, last week we had a call from a man, and he said, listen, Sean, 
if a prophet does not say, thus saith the Lord, it is not scripture. And Ezra Taft Benson, a, the president of the Quorum of the Twelve uh, Apostles, which they consider him a prophet, uh, seer, and revelator, on February 26th of 1980, said at BYU, these are the keys to being a prophet. You ready? 14 fundamentals of following a prophet. The prophet is the only man who speaks for the Lord in everything. The living prophet is more vital to us than the standard works. That means than the Bible or to their other standard works. The living prophet is more important to us today than a dead prophet. That means the living prophet can trump what a dead prophet has said. The prophet will never lead the church astray. I believe that. They'll lead people all over astray. But the church, it'll continue on its, on its uh, corporate course. The prophet is not required to have any particular earthly training or credentials to speak on any subject or act on any matter at any time. But number six says, the prophet does not have to say, thus saith the Lord, to give us scripture. The way he backs that up is he says, sometimes there are those who argue about words. They might say the prophet gave us counsel, but that they are not obliged to follow it unless he says it is a commandment. But the Lord says of the prophet, thou shalt give heed unto all his words and commandments which he shall give you. Doctrine and Covenants 21.4. And speaking of taking counsel from the prophet in Doctrine and Covenants 108.1, the Lord says, Verily thus saith the Lord unto you, your sins are forgiven you because you have obeyed my voice in coming up hither this morning to receive counsel of him who I have appointed. That was Joseph Smith as a prophet. Okay? And then he quotes Brigham Young, saying, I have never yet preached a sermon and sent it out to the children of man that they may not call Scripture. Journal of Discourses, 1395. That is the Ezra Taft Benson saying that these men do not have to say, thus saith the Lord, for it to be Scripture. Brigham Young said everything he has preached is Scripture. Ezra Taft Benson confirms it, and Brigham Young taught that Adam was God. Brigham Young taught the blacks will never have the priesthood. Brigham Young taught that e uh, polygamy is an eternal principle and you have to obey it in order to live in the highest degree of the celestial kingdom. He taught it from the pulpit as a prophet and in many of those circumstances even included, thus saith the Lord. Okay, uh, anything else? We're going to take one quick break and come back. This is a break. We're at war with a multi-billion dollar uh, multinational religious marketing machine and the only thing we have is information. And so we have some uh, we'll uh, products to tell you about and Open what we're going to do is we're going to offer them to anybody and everybody at a discounted price. Now the total value of these products uh, retail is about $100. So if you ordered them individually from us, it cost you about $100. Uh, the first one is we're doing the new book, normally about $28. Uh, Mormonism A to Z, we're offering that, this one. And then we're offering my favorite, If My Kingdom Was Of This World, Then My Servants Would Fight. And then we're offering I Was a Born Again Mormon. So three books. We're offering uh, a Mormon president, Joseph Smith, and the Mormon Quest for the White House. Uh, this DVD uh, we're offering as well. And then finally, we're offering, uh, in his words, this is the music that we use at campus. It's 17, whoop, 17 uh, scriptures put to music. It helps with memorization and worship. All of those five products 
Um, we're offering to you a $50 donation uh, or more, but $50 donation. Uh, that would save you a tremendous amount of money. It would make the ministry some money, and it gets out what we feel is a lot of good information out to people. If you don't want it for yourself, of course, you give it to family and friends. If you're interested in this, you can go to our website at www.hotm.tv. Check out the store. You'll see the offer there. And uh, so that's how you do it. We're just letting you know. Last week, I made a mistake. Uh, I get a lot of things sent to me, handed to me, passed to me, emailed, and I held this up at the end of the show, and I said uh, that they use the term pastor to describe a bishop in the Salt Lake Tribune article here, and I showed that last. You see, and what it, that, what it says is, uh, year after Joplin Tornado, Utah pastor returns to his hometown, and there's a picture of a bishop standing here, and I errantly made the connection that the title was related to this bishop standing there in the picture, and it wasn't. And I apologize for making that leap. It's been done before. They have called themselves pastors in the news before, and I uh, did not go through and read this uh, article in its entirety, but bottom line, that term pastor is referring to a Christian pastor who went to this town, and this is just another part of the story with the LDS bishop. So my uh, apologies. Uh, last week, we had a man call and claim how great missionaries uh, are when they go on their mission and when they come back. And this is from Discover Magazine. Let's see. It is uh, Science, Technology, and the Future. I don't know the date. Probably have to look in here. Uh, December. Uh, no, maybe not December. 612. Okay? And it says, the title of it is brought to us by my neighbors down at the end of the street. Paralyzed by faith, a Mormon missionary suddenly can't move his legs. What can his doctors do to help him walk again? It starts off, the medevac helicopter made a noisy descent to the landing pad at the University Medical Center in Salt Lake City. The patient on board was on the final leg of a long journey home from South Africa. Blank blank his name, Jeremy, an ambitious 23-year-old college graduate, had been on a Mormon mission to Johannesburg when he woke one day unable to move his legs. They went along and they examined him and doctors came in and everything else trying to figure out what he had picked up over there in Johannesburg and uh, they could not find anything. They tested everything about him and finally the doctor went in and he started to try to get personal with this man, this young man. And he said, I asked if he, again, if he had been exposed to toxins, uh, illicit drugs, he made eye contact, shook his head slowly. No, he said, has anything been bothering you lately? I asked him. I couldn't do it anymore, he said, tearing up. The mission. I hated being there and didn't like approaching people about religion. Why didn't you come home? Jeremy's brow furrowed. I didn't want to let my parents down. I couldn't break my promise to God. Sounds like you were under a lot of stress, I said. We continued to explore his concerns and reassured him that no one could force him to go back. I explained the situation to his parents. Initially, they were reluctant to accept a psychiatric explanation for his physical symptoms. They agreed uh, to involve himself in his rehabilitation. After a few family therapy sessions, Jeremy realized that they weren't angry and he opened up. By the end of the week, with his parents' encouragement and some physical therapy, Jeremy was gingerly walking the halls with them. He was discharged from the hospital and scheduled for follow-up uh, visits with a psychiatrist. Ten days later, Jeremy had completely recovered from his paralysis. 
This is one story in Discover Magazine from June. This is the recent uh, Discover Magazine that talks about the pressure that's on missionaries. And we also have read uh, several articles on the show about missionaries coming home and killing themselves because of the stress or killing themselves prior to going. The emails we get from young men and young women saying, my family wants me to serve a mission. My papers are in, but I know this church is not true. What can I do? We send them emails. I say, call me. I'll talk to you on the phone. And what happens? They usually go. So don't call here and say, uh, oh, it's just a perfect program and it works so well with people. There is a fallout that occurs when you place um, this kind of pressure on people to be perfect. We're working on having a guest in the near future who is training to be a clinical uh, psychologist. It's, I mean, not just, I mean, this is, and he spends his time dealing with people who are coming out of the Mormon church or who are in the LDS church and the pressures they feel of being a member of that church and trying to live up to all the do's, the do's, the do's that we talked about earlier in referencing John chapter six and when the people came to Jesus. You know, there's freedom in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is our petition, this is our message. You wanna stay LDS, I don't care. Because there's people who stay in other Christian churches that are almost as crazy. But let me tell you something. If you don't know the Lord personally, if you haven't been born again and through that, you realize who he is perfect, that he did all the work for you, his righteousness saves you, and you are a failure, and you need his shed blood to save you and bring you to the Father, you're lost. You're just lost, so I challenge you. Go to your bedroom, go to your car and say, Lord, I don't believe the guy on TV, but I trust your words that we must be born again and I'm coming to you to do it. And then give your life to him. Ask to be forgiven. Seek to have him become the king and ruler of your life. And then wait faithfully, patiently for him to step in and do it. And I promise you he will. He did it for me in 1997, changed my entire worldview, and I would never, ever go back. Join us next week here on Heart of the Matter.